Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is season one, that miracle that happened, that one time. And this is episode 48. Follow-up episode from episode 47. We continue with our guest, Brehax, the bread witch. Before the Commonwealth, government administration depended on the crown. Officers of the state had a personal relationship with the monarch. Their subordinates were their personal dependents. Now, all the customs farmers and monopolists lost their privileges. So, 90% of the corruption that plagued early modern government, which we've covered in some depth previously, was swept away. I mean, it's still government, so public choice theory applies. New forms of corruption will arise, but the Commonwealth and the Protectorate under Cromwell, which will follow it, will be dramatically less corrupt. Government began to be depersonalized. Finance departments were set up and staffed by competent and mainly honest merchants. Committees were created to do things like run trade, another for the selling off of confiscated land. The church was run by the Committee for Plundered Ministers. That's a great name. A new tradition of public service with professional civil servants who did not purchase their offices or owe anything to a patron began to form, albeit slowly. Quote, Sir Henry Vane, as treasurer of the Navy, brought men to understand that they were not placed in employment to serve themselves, but to serve the public. Unquote. Promotion in the Navy as well as the Army was by merit, and the world-beating effectiveness of both services owed much to this idea of public service. And do we all understand why selling public offices is a terrible idea, even though it was widespread? Well, only a rich man could take the job. That limits your potential talent pool by a lot. And the new office holder is focused on getting their money back through corruption or self-dealing, legal or illegal. And why was it so widespread? This would go on in France until their revolution. Short-term thinking. They wanted that upfront money. Yep. Of course, there would be backsliding under the Stuart Restoration, more corruption, but that's another episode. The Commonwealth government began to give trade serious attention, and its increase became a major preoccupation of government. This means they actually became concerned with making the country richer than it was and improving everything about it. The key thing was sweeping away the parasites of the court who could find any successful enterprise and suck away its profits. Also, the elimination of feudal land tenure and the court of wards made it possible to fully sell and mortgage land. Before this, land ownership was vulnerable to the crown. Now, all land was freehold. And capitalism could enter agriculture. The problem of feeding everyone now could be solved for the first time in history. Well, just take that in. The problem of feeding everyone now could be solved for the first time in history. It would still take a while, but just... Think about how momentous a change this is. Malthusian limits were normally not very far away in all of our past history before this, and now they'd be pushed off way over there, way over there. Cheap, abundant food. And funny, now that we have that, we're free to complain about quality. Well, they aren't eating enough vegetables. They're drinking too much soda. But I don't like broccoli. What? Who doesn't like broccoli? That's a luxury that happened for common people here for the very first time. 
This change to freehold land tenure was the first thing confirmed by the 1660 Restoration Parliament when the Stuarts returned. So it was a permanent change. Uh, some historians have seen this. Uh, Perkins quote, The decisive change in English history, which made it different from the continent. From it, every other difference in English society stemmed. Unquote. From it, every other difference in English society stemmed. Now, I will forgive Professor Perkins because he lasered in so well on the vital issue. But of course, the thesis of this podcast is that England was very different from early on, or this, quote, decisive change, unquote, would never have happened to begin with. I don't get it, though. I mean, I know starvation ended, the population could grow again, but what is it about freehold tenure that's so important? Mm, I thought you were a Doctor Who fan. Time could be conquered in many ways. Future revenue could be spent today. Secure ownership means that you could make long-run investments to improve the land. Because time was now on your side, your friend. It was no longer your enemy. But you're still going to die. Ah, sure. Everyone knows that, Russ. But that didn't bother people so much if they could just pass their land on to their family. People were perhaps less selfish in that way. Uh, there was a lot in episode 27 about families and the devotion people had and have. Let's do a hypothetical. With this change, you could now invest 10,000 pounds in, in drainage and new topsoil, making your farm income 2,000 pounds higher per year, and you could get a mortgage costing you 1,000 pounds per year to fund it. This is the sort of thing that it suddenly made sense to do. Before the end of feudal land tenure, you could not easily get a mortgage. And long-term investments are something between iffy and stupid for people who don't have a secure transmission of ownership. Iffy and stupid are technical terms from the world of finance. You didn't worry that if you died before your children became adults that the crown could waste all your efforts. Your children could be sure to benefit, and that's what you truly care about. It also made possible the newer and fairer forms of parliamentary enclosure. Still, there would be tragedy as in episode 20, but... This also would increase the availability of food, helping it get to that place where food is cheap and abundant. And this was not without risk, because there were communist types in England, the diggers who were all for letting anyone at all use common and waste lands, presenting petitions to Parliament for this purpose all through this time. But as I've said, we have a socially conservative Parliament, even though it was also radical in some respects, Paradox and contradiction again, and Parliament would reject this type of proposal over and over. Blackstone, the great legal theorist, said this change in land tenure was a greater boon to property than Magna Carta. Uh, Christopher Hill says, quote, In no sphere was the defeat of the radical movement more decisive than this. The century of agricultural prosperity which followed the Civil War victories of Cromwell's yeoman cavalry was also the century of the disappearance of the small landowner, unquote. Uh, there's a little bitter irony there, a little phony virtue signaling, It's and it's very understandable, but it's also a new world with vastly greater opportunities. Most of the people who are going to get rich will come from middling backgrounds. Clover seed first became widely available at this time, and the crop rotation we discussed in episode 21 allowed far more animals to survive the winter, more animals, more fertilizer, so everything just got better. Uh, 
I was going to do a farming joke here, but I think it needs some time to grow. <laughs> Wages were going up. That encouraged more land to go under the plow, and there was even enough grain to export some in the 1650s. There was a series of excellent harvests once Cromwell took power in 1653, as if God were smiling. In industry and commerce also, medieval quality regulations, guild controls, were all torn down. Now, for the first time in history, entrepreneurs were free to create businesses, hire anyone, pay them as much as they wanted. And all these rules limiting who could have what occupation and limiting the sizes of salaries were all gone. Eh, not all of them. Locally, there were many, but, but they would gradually fall to common law. It would take 20 years or so for people to fully wake up to the new possibilities around them, but they would wake up. Real capitalistic enterprise could arise anywhere now, not just in weird little exceptional cases like the Birmingham metallurgical industries we covered in episode 42. Common law came to predominate, and that meant property rights could really function. No arbitrary prerogative or church court could step in. As a result, government stopped trying to cap wages. You even see steps towards minimum wages in some circumstances. What's fascinating to me is that people generally did not notice that the world was dramatically changed, that limitless possibilities were now open. There was no theory yet to inform them that something big had changed. There was no language around it to use, nothing that they could teach you at school. That would have to wait for the 1670s when suddenly it seemed obvious to many, uh, hey, we're really quite rich compared to the rest of the world. How did that happen? Why didn't they notice if it was such a big change? Well, a lot of it was under the hood stuff, more freedom, and they had no theory to explain why freedom works so much better than compulsion in a practical sense, no notion of price theory. They had quite a bit of sense that freedom was morally superior to compulsion. That's why the freedom was created. But there was also something else going on, something big, that drew attention. Land upheavals. Between selling off royal lands, selling off church lands, selling off royalist lands, and huge sales privately by royalists, there was as big a turnover in land or even bigger than what happened with the dissolution of the monasteries under our old friends Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII. Uh, this was big. It got all the attention. It was not just big like, well, 20% of the country is just turned over by one means or another. No, that 20% is just an estimate too. But the new owners have an incentive to shake things up. If they had tenants who couldn't prove their rights to where they farmed, the new owners might boot them out quickly. Because if they accepted the claimed rights, then a common law right of tenancy might be established. So the new owners would take away many of the traditional freedoms and privileges of the tenants whenever the tenants couldn't prove that they had these rights in writing. Customary relationships, based on time-honored traditions, were converted to strictly monetary relationships in many cases. So we see tons of injustice going along with the improvements in food production. But not everywhere. So there was a lot of drama around what would happen in Warwickshire or over there outside Bristol. Adding to it, royalists could often buy back their confiscated estates from Parliament if they acted fast. 
by a, a process you may have heard of called compounding, where they could get their lands back by paying somewhere along 5 to 20% of the value if they were not very guilty of supporting the king. Yeah, so a sliding scale of guilt would decide what you'd pay. Lifestyles of the rich and famous in the balance. Uh, people paid more attention to that stuff. Imagine the opportunities for moral finger-wagging, pearl-clutching, celebrity-envying, and all the stuff that hobbits and monkeys alike enjoy. The only comparably bigger upheaval in land ownership before modernity I can think of happened after the French Revolution. Uh, for example, in places like Staffordshire, uh, there was more than a quarter of the land ownership turned over in a few years, more than half from 1610 to 1660, and communications infrastructure improved greatly. Highways were better maintained. Coastal shipping trebled three times as much. A post office that could carry private mail was established. Town-to-town regular coach services were started. So it's easier, and I guess uh, cheaper, to move things and people too. Prices come down. Oh yeah, but the effects were way better than that. With reliable transportation, regions could specialize in growing the crops that best suited their soil, knowledge, and climate. And before, every area had to grow all types of crops, no matter how inefficient. I mean, if you wanted to eat it, it had to be grown near you. With good roads, you might be able to afford food grown 20 miles away. And with all that coastal shipping, you could sell apples in Carnarvon from anywhere. Specialization was a great force to drive improved productivity and drive down prices and create more employment. With specialization and faith in markets, your farm could focus on what you and the land was best at. You could earn the most money that way and simply buy what else you need from a market. And this proved far better than the old way, where you had to grow and make everything on the farm yourself. Specialization... Hmm, that's an abstract word, isn't it? Emotionally distant? Does it feel more real if I say, listening to nature, produce what nature best provides, and then trust the market will provide for the rest of your needs? Because now markets are starting to be free most places. Everything was made better with cheaper transportation. Wages rose throughout this whole time period. Mining areas became prosperous under free markets as ore became so much cheaper for end users. Production expanded, wages rose. There were no more monopolists as there were in France to keep all the profits to themselves. And this will be partially reversed with the restoration. Mining wages will fall when the Stuarts bring back some of the monopolies. Finance, with the help of freehold land tenure, was revolutionized. You probably heard lending at interest was frowned upon in the Middle Ages. Usury, a sin, and a crime. Now it would be one of the tools that converted time from enemy to friend. As late as 1641, when interest was discussed in Parliament, they had to use the word damages. That's damages, not interest, but damages. By 1660, the moral taint had worn off. Six percent was the legal rate of interest, and anyone could play. You might find this very surprising, but under the Stuarts, wage laborers could not depart from their place of work without a testimonial from their employer. But that's not far from slavery or serfdom. I mean, if you can't move from one job to another. Yeah, uh, this is real oppression. It's medieval. 
the way the Stuarts and Laud liked it. You can see where the lower-class radicals were coming from. I mean, obviously the system was often ignored, and I think it never applied to live-in servants. But nevertheless, this is real oppression. But the Commonwealth ended this. People were now free to move about the country for 20 years on their own initiative until the Stuarts came back and set up some more oppressive laws in 1662. With rising wages and people free to move around, people and ideas spread to every corner of the island. And what about the welfare system for all the poor people? Uh, Seemingly that was never disrupted at all during the revolutionary decades from 1640 to 1660. With the end of the war, the 1650s were said to be the best decade ever for the poor in England. With higher wages and growing employment, the Puritan doctrine of sinful unemployment began to make some sense. This might feel odd, but there was a growing feeling that if you were able-bodied, you could find some work, that it was therefore sinful to take welfare, in logic, I mean, because that left less for Granny to enjoy in her retirement, or less for the children of Widow Jones, who never seemed to have shoes, much less socks, This attitudinal shift would have a lot of good and bad consequences, very complex, because it would lead to exploitation of workers and unhealthy paradoxical reactions to exploitation. I'm thinking of the trade union movement, which would have way too much influence in England post-World War II, but that doesn't concern us here. We're only going as far as the miracle and its consolidation and security. But for now, the idea gained currency that able-bodied unemployment was sinful and wicked. Or wicked and sinful. Hey, Wicked and Sinful was the name of my first band. We had songs like I Don't Want to Go to Work and My Body is Able, But I Just Want to Lie Down. And for the first time, this began to make (laughs) sense to people outside ideologically Presbyterian circles. And so, with the paradox that increasingly rare unemployment led to notions that people not working must be morally deficient, uh, which reminds me of the paradox that the first spreadings of prosperity led to literacy, and literacy made people more aware of the poor in the Tudor era. And so, with those two curious ideas, let's go to Conversations with Cammie. And thank you, Brehex, for sticking with me through the double episode. I hope the band works out. You're a real talent, and I'm glad you came on the program. Okay. We'll figure it out. <laughs> All right, Cammie, welcome back. We just listened to episode 48, and you got to hear Brehex, the bread witch. I'm sticking with bread witch. I, I'm not going to be able to pronounce his Norwegian <laughs> name. Any reactions? Well, it seems to me... Most of this episode is really economics. Mm, yeah. Being able to have entrepreneurs be able to create their businesses and, and really work for themselves for the first time freely. Farmers being able to improve their lands for future use of their children instead of thinking, oh, why bother? It's not going to benefit us industry being able to happen, government backing off and not trying to cap wages. Lots of change, I think, that leads to the ability for us to have that miracle. Yeah, it's certainly one of my arguments that that this is a precursor, a necessary precondition, maybe not sufficient, but uh, necessary. And then eventually, 
most of the rest of the world would copy it. Well, things like just basic transportation, being able to move goods. If you couldn't do that, having a major evolution in how we produce things wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, you can only use so many widgets in one town. Yeah, absolutely. Or that's one of the reasons why things were so much better in the United Provinces, in Holland and the other regions there, that that they could move goods by water so much more cheaply, that they then could specialize. I could have said a little bit more about specialization. Uh, I kind of implied that it was like, okay, so if you want to eat it, you've got to have it, grow it next to you. But I think it's a, a little deeper and more robust reason for the lack of specialization before, and that was that you were totally dependent on, on what you would grow. So if there was a blight on your wheat and you didn't have some other crops growing, you know, you didn't have any crops at all. And people starved. Uh, yeah. yeah. So th that would be one of the reasons why they would try to grow lots of, lots of different things. But now you could specialize. And of course, you know, sometimes, and even though that made everybody richer and made the world much better off, uh, it had a failure mode too, right? With the, um, the potato blight in the 1840s. Another way to say it is everything has a failure mode. So true. It seems with all these changes, the world became smaller. Its trade becomes more established. Oh, yeah. Going, going back to the money issue, they began to create they began to issue bonds, and we'll talk about th this more, but the way the English did it was, was really smart. And they essentially copied the Dutch again. They, they issued bonds that were beyond the ability of the king to interfere with. So they started to become a good credit risk. So they became the safest place in the world for people to send their money. Mm -hmm. So that even the Dutch, the Dutch ended up buying a high fraction of British government bonds to finance the war against Louis the Fourteenth. People started to have a safe way that wasn't land to have uh, an income stream in the future through interest on government bonds. Well, you mentioned interest earlier and 1641 being discussed in Parliament as damages. I thought that was kind of amusing in a way. Yeah. Yeah, sinful, wicked and sinful. Wicked, sinful damages. I want to not, go lie down. Not yeah. a way to, <laughs> to, to earn money or to invest in your future. Or, exactly. So the attitude shift on welfare was interesting to me, that if someone was perceived to be able-bodied, it was sinful to accept welfare. Yeah, I mean, so the Puritans had always had this notion that they could discipline the poor. And they actually tried to follow this in Scotland. And I think they believed it was somewhat successful that, what would you call them, lay ministers would supervise the poor, you know, make sure they had a job and make sure they got up in the morning to go do it and punish them if they didn't. Ooh, so those lay ministers or elders or their title wasn't the particular organization had some real power. Yeah, Presbyterian church discipline was a real serious thing. And the poor weren't thought of as necessarily, you know, deserving and having lots of rights. We'd seen a period of, of a great deal of sympathy for them, right? I think that's what you're, you're noticing here. A period of great deal of sympathy when clearly it was just not enough work. And, and this didn't change that much, uh, at least on the land. There would be chronic underemployment on the land, you know, well into the 19th century. 
But now there started to be jobs in towns and uh, and cities and shipboard where it was thought, if you're not working, you're just not trying hard enough. And ordinary people started to, I don't know, internalize or take in this sort of Puritan Presbyterian mindset of uh, wicked and sinful unemployment. Protestant work ethic, I believe I've heard that phrase before. Made famous by Max Faber. Heard any good jokes recently? What was that one you told me the other day that made me laugh? I'm a horrible joke teller. You're a horrible joke rememberer. You're a good joke teller. Thanks for coming on the program. You're welcome, and hopefully we'll get to hear more from Breadwitch, and his jokes are fun. And his songs are really good. Please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. Just remember, you can always reach me at harold at hangingwithhistory.com. That's Harold is H-A-R-A-L-D at hangingwithhistory.com or through the Contact Us link on the website.